So I'd like to give some teachings on impermanence and two views of it, the immensity of the infinity of it in a very, a very long-range view, open, wide to this uh, impermanence in nature and also moment-to-moment -moment views of it, how we experience it in our own hearts and minds, moment-to-moment. So always these teachings have come alive and more deeply integrated in my heart when they are expressed in nature, and especially when I've been in retreat and the mind is quiet and can really just turn to see or hear or feel the changing uh, temperature on my face through the winds, the rustling of trees, the rippling of waters. When I was in my 20s, I was inspired by a book of Hermann Hesse called Siddhartha. Probably many of you have come across that book. And I've forgotten the details. Much of the book, I know, uh, took a place in my heart, which was just beautiful and helped me to open to this understanding of Anicca through some part of the book that um, I remember listening and taking in with each sense door the description that the Buddha-to-be was having as he sat next to a river, this constantly flowing river, always in a state of flux, flowing water like our lives, impossible to stop impossible to hold on to any part of it. When I remember that image in the story, it brings me to present time, real time in my life now, bringing awareness to the flow of that river I'm living. I'm actually in the fluxing and changing of every moment, the different conditions that come up, the highs and lows, the happinesses and the grief that comes from impending loss, from loss itself. So it's happening for all of us here as we practice in this kind of simplicity of retreat. We're doing our best to be present with all that is, taking in the five physical sense doors and bringing conscious awareness to what is going on there, what's beautiful, what's annoying to us, just noticing even the inner response to it all. A few years ago, I fulfilled an aspiration to walk the Camino. I think I mentioned it uh, yesterday or so, the Camino de Santiago in Spain. And um, I walked it twice, actually. The first time I walked, um, I took some part of it, and then the second time I walked, I took another part of it. So this is a thousand-year-old pilgrimage that's not only for Catholics, but it's a pilgrimage for many people of many walks of life. And for me, it was intended as an inner pilgrimage as well. So I went with a dear friend, a nun in the Burmese tradition, um, but she was raised in, in Hawaii here, a good friend of mine. And we took the what we call the Camino Frances, beginning in France, but we started from 
a place um, more central to Spain in Burgos. And we walked around 300 miles from there to Santiago. And we took that route because it went through a lot of forested areas and uh, went alongside and crossed many rivers. And it was important for me to go at a natural pace, to just slow down, to become immersed in the natural environment, and much more to become more aware of what's going on moment to moment with me inside, in within that um, kind of feeling of safety and beauty of nature. I really um, wanted to just be with the simplicity of hearing and smelling and tasting and feeling my feet on the ground. And um, it was a, a, a time for me of deep um, contemplation and also of healing. So to establish a deeper healing connection with my body and with my heart and mind, I wanted to be in sync with nature to have around me these natural resources to be attentive to. So that's part of what we're doing here too, being attentive to those resources. So later I heard about forest bathing. I just wanted to bring that up. That was interesting part of my um, understanding. It has roots in different cultures. In the Japanese culture, this Forest therapy of forest bathing is called Shinrin-yoku. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Forgive me if I'm not. It's medicine and healing of simply being in a forest. And its aim is to slow down, to become immersed in natural environment, become aware and intentionally tuning into all of our senses in relationship to that, it tends to clear out the clutter of the mind. And I learned from further reading that in Japan and South Korea, there's medical research being studied that forest bathing has uh, reductions in stress hormones and much more. So I know that all of you live around the Mississippi River and the trees and the um, forests and uh, all of the beauty of nature around that. And so that's also a beautiful place where you can do that. So my friend and I walked at a natural pace among the trees, crossing rivers in sun and rain and wind um, through simple villages in the countryside. It was just living simply. Um, we walked maybe 18 to 19 miles per day and along river paths. It was really soothing for me to do that and putting aside things that would come up in my heart and my mind intentionally just just saying later and just paying attention to the closeness of nature and what it was presenting, which were the sounds of water moving over rocks sometimes, sometimes the rustling sound of trees the roaring sounds of wind through open spaces. And with that, it would be just hearing, just hearing being known. Of course, appreciating and um, 
experiencing my own mind that maybe liked certain parts or didn't like certain parts. There was this constant change of sounds being known, just all rushing by, nothing to hold on to, which helped me to face whatever my own heart and mind was going through, you know, not needing to hold on to anything, to stop anything and figure it out or find some place where I could rest in some part of it, but just intentionally turn the mind to something natural and infinite, like nature around. Sometimes interwoven with the hearing would be seeing, just seeing, sunlight resting on the water, flickering, or sometimes bright sunlight that was ahead of me all the time, and Um, seeing how the mind would close down, the eyes would close down to that. Just noticing everything pristinely, simply like that. We walked mostly in silence, and sometimes there would be the scent of nature around, the dampness of the soil, just smelling, just smelling, just simple, just seeing, seeing, hearing, hearing just feeling the rain on my face, just feeling and not making a a Dharma talk in my mind about anything at all. Uh, Normally for me, everything goes into like, oh, what could I make of this in the Dharma? But even that was a bother in a way. It was unnecessary. It was like, just put that down for a while. Just be with nature, with this beauty around me that I've come a thousand miles or more to be with. So the rhythmic pulsing of all of that matched the rhythmic pulsing pulsing of my own heart, walking up hills, walking down hills, um, just sitting down sometimes and paying attention inwardly to what was going on. So this is the workings of impermanence happening. It's all around us, and are we paying attention to it in ways that really help us have the deep respect for it that the Buddha gave, for example. So sometimes there were attitudes of mind like appreciating. Are we noticing those in our lives, you know, just in the daily movement of our lives? or not appreciating, feeling aversive towards, of course. Sometimes there are times when we feel like being generous. Sometimes there are times when we're holding on or feeling like, um, no, feeling too insecure to open up. And just making that a precious moment also. We can learn to be with these simple, quickly fleeting moments in a way that's keenly aware of them, even in our daily lives. Everything just moving along, inwardly, like they're moving along outwardly. The river of life is happening within, as it is all around us. This may be boring to us, or thinking about it, but even can we even pay attention a little bit to what's going on in this movement of life that we are um, in the physicality, in the emotionality, in the mentality within, 
in the beautiful spaces, in the hard spaces. This is what our life or our practice, if we're really serious about our practice, can we go there too? So it helped me make it possible for my heart to open when within, you know, and open to what was going on in my own life, to the natural unfolding processes of life around me. Everything around me is natural. Could I attend to the naturalness inside in that same way? So it's sort of like balancing uh, the way I was doing it inwardly in a way that was in alignment with what was happening outwardly. So I do have faith that all of these dynamic rippling currents of change are momentary teachings that I open to. This, the utter simplicity of them are momentary profound teachings. I have faith in that, that just taking a moment to be aware of that bird song just a moment ago flitting by, not like, um, you know, like I had to stop it because it was unpleasant or stop it because it was pleasant and I wanted more of it. It was more just allowing it to go by. Then that could align with the possibility in my own heart of allowing whatever happening to go by. And sometimes, of course, I'm not denigrating or dismissing the possibility and the importance of taking stock of a situation, an event, or a moment, and figuring out what to do with this. We have to do that, of course. But we do that so much that it sort of takes over our life where we can't even let go of thinking when we don't need that thinking anymore. When How many times have I thought about something so many times in different ways and haven't come to any conclusion? But when I can turn my attention to hearing, hearing, and just let it go by, that is a profound teaching. If we just let it in our hearts, not make a Dharma talk about it at the same time, just let it happen, be aware of it. Simple. There are so many simple things we can do in the Dharma that the Buddha has taught. Are we listening? Are we actually paying attention? We don't have to make it that complicated. I... I'm along um, with Steve and his he said yesterday that he didn't read things for a long time, read the Dharma for a long time, just experienced. And I found that true for myself too. Actually, Manindra, um, he said, it's okay not to learn about the Dharma. In the beginning, I wasn't admonished to read anything. It was more like just experience, just do the practice. So I want to read something from um, a teacher that I've read a couple of times through her books, um, and this is Upasika Lee from Thailand. She's one of the foremost uh, teachers, forest teachers of the Dhamma in Thailand, and she started a practice center for women uh, way back in the beginning of the century. She died recently. Well, that isn't that recently, 1979. So here's her um, 
words. This is Upasika Ki Nanayon. If you look into the rippling current of experience, you'll find that there's actually nothing you can latch onto as having any essence. Everything disbands and disappears. New fabrications arise and pass away, arise and pass away. They keep on flowing and they seem to involve many issues. But actually there aren't many issues. There's only arising, remaining and passing away. It's because we're so focused on not seeing this that there seem to be so many issues. But no matter how many there are, there's only just this, arising, remaining, and passing away, like a rippling current of water where the rippling isn't a thing at all. If you learn to see skillfully in this way, you'll see that all things arise, remain, and pass away. The past has passed away. The future hasn't yet come. The practices Look simply at the present arising and passing away right before your eyes and don't hold on. When you see arising, remaining, and passing away, pure and simple, right in the present moment, and then let go, that's when you gain release. This is from her book, Pure and Simple. That's the name of her book. So, we're missing out on this, these deep, penetrating, profound, earth-shattering teachings when we're not really paying attention to the present moment and we're trying to hold on to what's pleasant, push away what's unpleasant, figure out what to do about it over and over and over again. Of course, we still need to figure things out. I'm not dismissing that. But I'm saying, please pay attention to the present moment. What the Buddha taught is no small thing. You know, are we actually doing that? So in recent times, tuning into the, the level of infinity and immensity of impermanence, adding to my own practice on the moment-to-moment -moment level, the process of us as human beings in this endless repeating cycle of birth, life, death, and rebirth again and again started standing out to me like this immensity of impermanence on the level of infinity. If you can't go there, you know, just I'm going to um, give you some examples of that in a moment. But if you can't go there, think of it in terms of just one life, the immensity of impermanence on one life, in one life, of being born, going through infancy and adolescence. I mean, who wants to do that again? <laughs> Adulthood, our elder years, the dying process and death itself. This is called samsara. One definition of samsara is perpetually wandering through states of existence the endless cycle of eternally becoming, birth, life, changes, death, and rebirth, then again and again and again, an infinite, never-ending, immense infinity cycle. 
So I've been reflecting on that. How long has this been flowing and, in, and fluctuating on and on and on in this being's life cycle? Since time immemorial, the infinite immensity of impermanence, all the joys and sorrows, all the pains and pleasures, when will realization happen that that can come to an end? Realizing this has given an increased sense of spiritual urgency for me, which is in the Pali language called samvega. Samvega is a sense of urgency to escape the rounds of wandering through this endless cycle, and it needs to be balanced with clarity and serene confidence. So here's where equanimity and balance is involved too. It's keeping this in mind as we also keep the preciousness of this one life also important and how we handle this one life. Knowing the immensity brings to to my heart and mind the preciousness of this one life and how I am or we are handling that. So this balance allows us to proceed in a way through our life practice without lapsing into despair, not out of aversion to the natural process of life, but out of compassion and wisdom to the now of life. So that quiet aspiration, that sense of urgency, is part of my practice. It's part of, kind of in the background, but always there for my practice, my life as I face the conditions naturally unfolding, these um, karmic conditions that we all, that I find also my own um, self in. So when I was younger, I listened to the words of the Buddha that were beyond my capacity to comprehend, but I was always assured that if I kept practicing, that experiential understanding would happen. And it is happening through the moment-to-moment taking in of that, of, those, of that impermanence, of that change. So I'm going to read um, from some ancient suttas, uh, words of the Buddha, that give us a sense of what is beyond the concept of time in understanding this infinity of cycle of birth and life and death and how the cycles of change on the macro level as well as on the micro level are constantly happening. So it might not be so possible to take this in in our, in our minds at this time, but it's, I wasn't able to when I heard these a long time ago. So it's, it's good to just allow it to be there and not to um, try to understand it in a um, kind of a psychological way, but just to let it sink in. So this is from one of the suttas. A Brahmin in India asked the Buddha, how many eons have elapsed and gone by in terms of wandering in this cycle of samsara? Is it possible to give a simile? And before I read the answer of the Buddha, I want to explain uh, what an eon is in in Buddhist cosmology. In Buddhist cosmology, an eon is 4.32 billion years. 
That's one eon. The Earth is 4.5 billion years old. So had to look all these up. And uh, so in, in astronomy, one eon is 100,000 million years. No matter which one it is, one is way more than the other. It, to me, it's a long, long time. So it's unimaginable. But So here again is the sutta from the Samyutta Nikaya, the book of causation. And this is translated uh, from Pali by Bhikkhu Bodhi. A Brahmin asked the Buddha, how many eons have elapsed and gone by in terms of wandering in this cycle of samsara? Is it possible to give a simile? And the Buddha answered, It is possible, Brahmin. Consider the grains of sand between the point where the river Ganges originates and the point where it enters the great ocean. Brahmin. The eons that have elapsed and gone by are even more numerous than that. It is not easy to count them and say there are so many eons or so many hundreds or so many thousands of hundreds of eons. For what reason, Brahman? Because this samsara is without discoverable beginning. It is enough to be liberated from them. Now, when I read this last line, it is enough to be liberated from them. It says to me, isn't it time enough to be liberated from them? So it, it really asks me the question, you know, and brings up this samvega, this spiritual urgency. On another occasion, while dwelling at Sabati, the Blessed One said, Bhikkhus, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned of being, beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance, fettered by craving. Whenever you see anyone in misfortune, in misery, you can conclude, we too have experienced the same thing in this long course. Whenever you see anyone happy and fortunate, you can conclude, we too have experienced the same thing in this long course. For what reason? Because, Bhikkhus, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. It is enough to be liberated from them. So lastly, <clears throat> continuing with the Buddha's words, at Sav Savati, Bhikkhus, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance, fettered by craving. What do you think, bhikkhus? Which is more, the stream of tears that you have shed as you roamed and wandered on through this long course, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable, separated from the agreeable? Which is more, this or the water in the four great oceans? And the bhikkhus responded, as we understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, this alone is more than the water in the four great oceans. And the Blessed One responded, bhikkhus, it is good that you understand the Dhamma in such a way.
So the fluctuations of even just one life, being born, the stages of infancy, childhood, teen years, early and later adulthood, aging to elderhood, through health and sickness, dying and death, all the happiness and sorrow, all the gain and loss, all the experience we get caught in, in between, slips through our fingers like water from the river of life. And the water keeps flowing through. So when I was in my 20s, the end of the river was not something I thought about. It was more about the future and what could be attained there or learned there or lived there. Was too busy also thinking about surviving and raising children. So even so, I did have a lot of interest and beginning sense of urgency to understand and realize a deeper meaning of life. So now at this age, like most of you, the river is mostly behind me, and uh, most probably. And there's a natural organic arising of a reflection of the a- of aging that I'm going through and the impending death of not just for myself, but, you know, people close to me and the preciousness of this human birth. So here again is something about balance, because all of this can bring, you know, this deep sense of urgency and sometimes fear, but also it can bring about the opposite or the other end of the spectrum, which is the preciousness of this human life and what we're using this life for in terms of our own benefit, and also equally important, is for the benefit of others. So as I dive into the Dhamma more profoundly, keeping the truth of impermanence in the forefront each day, can't help but do that, Um, I also keep this understanding of the preciousness of this moment in the forefront of my heart and mind. So not long ago, several years ago, actually, I did some practice in Lumbini, the birthplace of the Buddha, did some personal um, long-term practice, and I brought some words of advice uh, with me from a great Tibetan teacher that I admire very much, Dilgo Kinsey Rinpoche. I don't usually read um, during retreats, but I brought... Uh, this reading to me because it brought me a sense of urgency and also recognition of the preciousness of my life, of this moment, to remember how fortunate I am to be on this Dharma path and to use my life wisely. So every day I read this, um, and I hope that really what I'm channeling is the purity and strength of this great being and his intention to wake us all up, to remember that, our good fortune. Ask yourself how many of the billions of inhabitants of this planet have any idea of how rare it is to have been born as a human being. How many of those who understand the rarity of human birth ever think of using that chance to practice the Dharma? How many of those think of practice actually do practice? How many of those who start continue? 
how many of those who continue attain ultimate realization. Indeed, those who attain ultimate realization compared to those who do not are as few as the stars you can see at daybreak. As long as you fail to recognize the true value of human existence, you will just fritter your life away in futile activity and distraction. But once you really see the unique opportunity that human life can bring, you will definitely direct all your energy into reaping its true worth by putting the Dharma into practice. Just as every single thing is always moving inexorably closer to its ultimate dissolution, so also your own life, like a burning butter lamp, will soon be consumed. It would be foolish to think that you can finish all your work and retire to spend the latter stages of your life practicing the Dharma. Can you be certain that you'll live that long? Does death not strike the young as well as the old? No matter what you're doing, therefore, remember death and keep your mind focused on the Dharma. So strong words, admonition, realizations for me whenever I read that. The Pali word for this infinity and immeasurability, imme- immeasurability of impermanence is anicca. And most of us, if not all of you, remember what that word is. And what it means is the subtleties that include the moment-to-moment view, not just that, you know, the stars come and go and the moon comes and goes in the evening, the sun rises the seasons come and go, that's very, um, not very deep. It's the arising, Anicca is the arising, the becoming different, becoming otherwise, the disappearing, never staying the same, everything in this relative reality subject to change. It's realized as a continual flowing onness of life. Like beginningless, endless rivers emerging from innumerable conditions within us, the fluxing, changing, moving, evaporating into different forms, coming again into another form, like rivers going into oceans, humidity, bringing it up into the atmosphere again, falling again. This is the fluctuation of our own inner life, similarly. We're fortunate to be in places where we're surrounded by, and we can notice trees and rivers and clouds, things constantly changing around us, people's faces, our own inner experiences being deep in the present moment, not letting that get lost on us. We may say it in different ways, but we each practice consciously or unconsciously to understand the nature of life. Not just to understand the nature of our life and how we came to be and what were the causes and conditions and what is going to happen. That kind of takes over but maybe going more deeply on a moment-to-moment level 
and understanding it in a deeper, more profound way can add to our acceptance of life, can support us in our acceptance of the comings and goings of our own life and people around us and the way things change in the intimate view of our relationships so that we can be in alignment with this profound understanding of the um, the naturalness of letting go. Because as we see the naturalness of it happening in nature, somehow silently we take that in. And again, we don't have to make a Dharma talk about it, but just silently, very naturally, very innately, the mind and heart knows how to let go because it lives in alignment with how things are. And we don't have to like consciously think about things and say, I shouldn't be thinking about that. I'm just going to let it go. It just goes. It just is time for it to move on. We've gathered or garnered the truth, the wisdom of that, and we just let it move on. We don't have to be tight-fisted about what goes on in our lives. Otherwise, it's like clinging to a rope that's always moving. And uh, I learned this from my colleague, Joseph Goldstein. We get rope burn when we hold so tight-fistedly to something that's always moving along in its own natural way. So we understand by simple virtue of witnessing this moment-to-moment experience, going to that bare attention and being able to follow what may be boring um, (laughs) instructions to just be with whatever is happening moment-to-moment. This brings profound changes in our lives. It's brought profound changes to Steve and to myself and other people like all of you in your life. The letting go happens naturally. It it doesn't take any oomphing or any uh, cajoling (laughs) or any talking into at all. It just happens because we live in alignment with how things really are. So we come to this possibility of understanding The Buddha said, uh, this is in the uh, Anguttara Nikaya, better a single day of life perceiving how things rise and fall than to live out a century yet not perceiving how they rise and fall. That's within. And so... um, Another from the Buddha... At Savati, this is about impermanence, of course. Bhikkhus, form is impermanent. The cause and condition for the arising of form is also impermanent. As form has originated from what is impermanent, how could it be permanent? Feeling is impermanent. Perception is impermanent. Volitional formations are impermanent. Consciousness is impermanent. The cause and condition for the arising of consciousness is also impermanent. As consciousness has originated from what is impermanent, how could it be imperman- How could it be permanent? 
So this practice of vipassana is aimed towards this experiential understanding, not something we read in a book or take for granted because we believe in a certain person's practice or what they're saying, but because we take the practice, we do the practice, we follow this utter simplicity of it, and this is how it's taken in moment by moment by moment. The various ways that we're seeing deeply come through this understanding of this fluctuating nature in our minds, in our bodies, through all the five aggregates, which was just mentioned by the Buddha in the reading. We learn this understanding of impermanence through opening to these five aggregates. Feeling, form, first of all, body, then feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, perception, which includes remembering, but perception of what is being known, volitional formations, and even consciousness itself, which is one of the last holdouts of insisting that it's permanent. All of this is impermanent. This is anicca. And so we bring our our, um, deep practice to the simplicity of this understanding. And I love this um, quote by Thich Nhat Hanh. It brings back the preciousness of, um, of the moment and the time we have together caring for one another. You are here, I am here, and we both will die. Now in this moment, we have this time together. So how can we hold that, you know, beauty, but actually sometimes impermanence can be scary and fearful and sad because we lose people in that. But actually we begin to live in ever-deepening harmony with the inner world as we pay attention to the outer world. Um, one of our colleagues that Joe, uh, Steve was mentioning, um, Jack, what's his last name, who said, um, the whole of our Dharma lives, and the whole of our lives really, but in our Dharma lives, we're consciously in a grieving process. We're learning how to grieve effectively. That's what our Dharma lives are all about. With the beauty of knowing metta, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, patience, perseverance, truthfulness, all of these beautiful qualities that we're taking in. It's a grieving process that we're learning how to grieve effectively in our lives. So I'd like to end with this, um, another experience from this nun who talked about her awakening experience. And um, this was an 18th century abbess 
from a nunnery in Japan. Her name was Teijitsu. This was her moment of awakening through Anicca. She saw that all phenomena arose, abided, and fell away. She saw that knowing this itself arose, abided, and fell away. Then she knew there was nothing more than this, no ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. So there again, bringing in the equanimity of the nothingness and the everythingness of life. So thank you for your kind attention to that. Um, we hope to bring more depth to uh, these teachings um, this time, going straight to the characteristics and of um, that we're turning the mind to in our practice. It's time enough. <laughs> we don't need the, the baby steps, but we, we still do, actually, because it's hard. Life is hard. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.